and welcome to the Undead Wookiee, episode 67, Rabid from 1977. I am your host, as always, Hugh Lloyd. The Undead Wookiee is a fortnightly-ish podcast focusing on horror and sci-fi, but there will be times where we dip into other genres because here at the Undead Wookiee, our nerdiness knows no bounds. Hello and welcome back. And of course, in this episode, we are looking at David Cronenberg's 1977 classic, Rabid. Now, before I introduce my incredible co-host on this episode, let's check out the trailer. All around her, people are dying, and only Rose knows why. You gotta come quick. You gotta come quick and get me. It's Rose. It's gotta be. Something's happened to Rose. Don't scream. Don't panic. He's dead. And the dead can't hurt the living. Rabbit. The Prime Minister was reluctant to officially declare a state of emergency. But as any citizen in the streets can tell you, martial law has come to Montreal. Shooting down the victims is as good a way of handling them as, as we have got. Stop! Stop or I'll shoot! Trust your mother, your best friend, the neighbor next door. One minute, they're perfectly normal. The next, rabid. Pray it doesn't happen to you. Rabid. And we are back, and I am joined by the Ronald Hutton of the Undead Wookiee podcast, the man who put Dandy into Dandy Dan, the one, the only, Mr. Liam Jones. How are you, sir? I'm not too bad, not too bad. How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm assuming that you're wearing some kind of cravat or some kind of foppish attire. Well, you can't see me, so you never know. <laughs> I'll let the, let the audience figure that out for themselves. <laughs> Leave it to the... It's, it's much better in my head. Much better in exactly. my head. <laughs> right. We are talking... Um, well, quite an interesting film, actually, given the current current climate. Um, we are talking about 1977's Rabid by David Cronenberg. Um, yeah. Notice you were on a bit of a Cronenberg... Um, Cronenberg binge recently. Well, I have been a bit because um, I've got a uh, what do you call a uh, subscription to the BFI player, and they've already got two Cronenberg films on there already. They, they had The Brood and Rabbit. Yeah, they did have Dead Ringers on there, but that's gone from the subscription, sadly. So I won't be getting to that one soon, sadly. Yeah. But it's an interesting film. 
I'd say, particularly where it fits into his canon, because I'd say you can clearly tell it's him starting to mature into his style a bit more. Yes, yes. I don't. I think we, you know, we don't have the full blown body horror of the fly. Mm. But yeah, I think you also have. You can tell compared to perhaps his previous film, uh, was it Shivers? Yes, yes. Compared to that, you can tell it's a bit more him maturing as a filmmaker. You can tell he's coming into his own. Yes, yes. He's starting to develop more of a coherent style. Absolutely, absolutely. And he's, and he's more confident as a filmmaker. I think you can sort of see there's more of a confidence c- coming through there compared to Shivers, which is, you know, it's quite a low budget effort. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, yes, it is. Now, obviously, um, this was directed and written by David Cronenberg. Um, it starred Marilyn Chambers, Frank Moore, Joe Silver, who I love in this. Joe Silver is amazing in this. I think he's absolutely superb as Murray Cipher. Um, Howard uh, Ricefin, Patricia Gage, uh, Susan Roman, Roger Pierre, uh, Terry Schulman, I think I'm saying that right, and a cast of f- a few more. Um, this. Uh, sum up the plot, Familia. Sum up the plot. Oh, God, how does, where to start? Well, it's a bit of a strange one because the you know, whole premise is a woman has a, has a motorcycle accident yes. with her boyfriend. And she undergoes a surgical operation, which, which results in her developing this strange orifice under one of her armpits. <laughs> which, yes. basically, it makes her into a vampire. Essentially, which then... It results in infecting people of a sort of almost like a, an extreme form of rabies. It's almost kind of somewhere between the crazies. It's like if Cronenberger yes. directed the crazies. I think so. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a brilliant, brilliant hmm. uh, uh, sort of... And it does fit into that sort of cycle of films like The Crazies, like Dawn of the Dead. Well, it uh, fits that... I was having a chat with one of my friends earlier about this, actually, because I was saying about one thing that sort of defines 70s cinema is cynicism. There's oh, a sort yes. Of, there's a bleakness to... It's that post-Watergate, post-Vietnam sort of generation. Yes. So it's that sort of very downbeat films, very bleak films often the you know the violence gets amped up the sort of subject matter becomes nastier yes the sort of there's always a distrust of authority in them as well like a sort of a lot of the antagonistic forces are authority figures you know whether it's like the military yeah. or the government or some or the police so there's always some sort of authority figure is in an antagonistic role absolutely absolutely now this of course like i said we st- it starred uh marilyn chambers in mm. her first i would suppose um mainstream role well that's basically because she was known for basically she was known for pornography before and that was yes she was actually very well known at the time for it but she always had a desire to make you know make a transition to mainstream film yes and she was and as most people in the film industry seem to seem to be horror films is a lot of people's gateway into film yes yes like a lot of directors get their start making a horror film because people i think i've did you the advice of if you want to get into film, make a horror film first, because it's usually the cheapest ones you can make, and sometimes there's some of the easier films you can make. Yeah. And, and they're being produced all the time. Yes, absolutely. Now, unfortunately, she passed away in 2009. I didn't realise that. Um, until, I didn't realise that either. Until I started um, sort of doing a bit of background research mm. and things. But she passed away in 2009. Oh, um, I did not know that. She had a very interesting career. Um, mm. I think this is probably one of her better-known mainstream efforts. Mm. Um, and in terms of legitimate performances, there's something about her performance in this. I'm quite uh, su- surprised because, you know, when people think 
you know, adult actors. They don't really associate it with you know, actual acting. No, no, they don't. Um, and she sort of, there's this sort of almost deadpanness to mm. her, um, which fits the film because I'd say it's a it's a strange film because even though it's you know essentially at the end of it, it is an exploitation film. Oh, completely. It's an completely. old school seventies exploitation. You know, I think the seventies is almost the the sort of golden age yes. of the exploitation film, but it's also got this seriousness to it. There's, there's this yeah very bleak serious it's a very deadpan seriousness to it which is quite unusual for some of those films i think yeah i mean you do get you you know you do get the dry humor of cronenberg mm. does come through on a couple of occasions yeah but I it's mean, none of that fun you'd sometimes see in the summer of exploitation film or that sort of silliness you'd sometimes see in those films yes yeah and i mean you know obviously I, it was produced by ivan reitman mm-hmm. um and... would also go on to bigger much bigger things later on yes and into and also well um, didn't he do a little film? Um, oh, something to do with oh, Christ. what were you going to call? Um, <laughs> what was that? Oh, it'll come to me. It'll come to me. But uh, <laughs> they've all got to start somewhere. Well, exactly. You've all got to start. So, I mean, this was also co-produced um, by Roger Corman as well through his New World Pictures mm. uh, for its re- uh, to get a wider release in the US. Mm. Um, and I mean, obviously, this was recently remade. Yes, it was last year, I believe. Yeah, 2019 by the... Which I still it's haven't seen. It's okay. It's all right. I watched it the other yeah. day. It's okay. It's it'd be right. interesting to see, because I know it's directed by two women, so it'd be interesting to see it from a woman's perspective in particular, particularly with the lead character yes. being a woman. It'd be interesting to see it from a different perspective. Yeah, it. it I mean, it's okay. Mm. It's nothing sort of revolutionary. Um, mm. It's directed by the Soskia sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, starred Laura Vandervoot. Um, mm. And I'm also. Not familiar C- with. Uh, CM Punk pops up in it. Oh, that's a strange one. Uh, former pro wrestler and MMA punch bag. Um, huh. But. Um, I also just looked at the new one and there's a character in it called Dr. William Burroughs, which I find quite. <laughs> quite entertaining there. Uh, yes. I'm wondering if that's on purpose. I would imagine so. And I, mean, I wonder if that's a tribute to 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 um, Cronenberg himself, who I know is a big Burroughs fan, and of course made Naked Lunch yeah, into I a mean, film. It, it's got to be, hasn't it? It's got absolutely. the impossible task of trying to make Naked Lunch into a film. Bit of a thankless one, that one. I do like that film, but he can t- clearly tell he did the smart thing of not actually adapting the novel. Yes, by, but trying to make it a part biography, biopic, part. Yeah, I mean, I do... and I think that's the only way you could do it because that book is impossible to adapt. I was about to say it is completely it's impossible. Basically, to sort of, yeah. basically made. Yeah. It's built not to be. It's written in a way where it's kind of designed not to be adapted. Oh, absolutely. Now, the yeah. other thing I love in this is the fact that the um, what the kind of catalyst for this is the idea of franchising plastic surgery. Mm. Or before it really become. A big thing, I'd say. Yeah, if I'm yeah, yeah. Thinking, yeah, yeah. And I, mean, I don't think it becomes as prominent. I think probably the 80s it becomes a bit more prominent. Yes, of a thing. yeah, absolutely. And I love the fact that, the, you know, the Doctor is Dr. Dan Keloid. <laughs> which, um, obviously, a keloid is um, a form of scar tissue that with collagen mm. 
uh, that can like form like quite hideous lump. But but of course, it's Doctor Doctor Can Keloid and the Keloid. Um, so the Keloid mm. surgery or something like that. It, and it's you can't save a Cronenberg subtle. No, no, not not at all, not at all. And they're sort of like trying to, um, they you know they're having this meeting at the beginning, um, and then you get the car, you know, the the bike accident, which is really mm. well filmed. Mm. Is really really well filmed in this, as well as the scene with the taxi. Um, mm. I'd forgotten how good that sequence is, where the guy becomes ill after being mm. bitten, or, or or I suppose injected. Yeah, it's a, what I find quite interesting about this film is that it's a very Cronenbergian take on the vampire. Mm. Mm. Like the man couldn't do a straight vampire film; he couldn't do like a typical, you know. Dracula bites you in your neck. No, no, no. He, has he to couldn't. Have... He'd have to do because I, I was reading an interview with him. I can't remember if I can find it up here, but he says the one thing he always wanted to avoid in his films was the supernatural. He was never interested. He said he always had no in, real interest in the supernatural. Yes, he'd always try to find some sort of, obviously not really based in any real science, obviously, but there's always a science fiction style. You know, I concept it was always biological everything happened for a biological reason yes and, I, and in fact and the original even... film is called mosquito yeah 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 because that's the original it's the draining of the blood isn't it yeah. mm, that was the original you know the original concept of it which you can obviously see because it's very insect like yeah oh absolutely and i mean there is yeah you do get this even though it's quite a fantastical situation mm. um there is there is always the foundation of reality mm. to it. Well, there's rabies at the end yes. of the day, it is. And which was quite big in the 70s as well. That was quite a... Yeah, and there's this sort of like almost clinical mm. feel to it. Well, it's a very cold film. Not just, not even just the time of year, because it's set around, you know, it's set during Christmas time. Yes. Would you and class you can... this as, I mean, I suppose if Die Hard's a Christmas film, would you say the rabies is, um... is a Christmas film? Possibly, you know, Santa Claus does turn up at one point. He does, and I, I, I actually, when I was sort of scribbling my notes, I actually made a note to this where um, Santa becomes collateral damage. Yeah, Santa Claus gets gunned down by the Canadian police, <laughs> which is an interesting sight. One thing I found that was quite interesting about Cronenberg's early films is how they got funded. Well, they came through the um, Canadian government. Canadian government, yeah. Yeah, there was a parody uh, in the I think the sixties and seventies. There was a push for Canada, Canada, of its own film industry, because yeah. obviously America dominated, you know, dominates the the film industry in the West. Yes. So obviously Canada wants to sort of, you know, obviously wants to step up down and says, well, we want our homegrown films. You know, we want our directors making films. So really, they put their money into anything. If oh. you could, if you came to them saying we want to make this, they'd plough money at you. But when Shivers came out, it sort of, it sort of backfired on them a bit because they didn't realise what they were putting their money into. Oh, absolutely not. They just didn't sort of. I don't think they expected. Oh. Um, <laughs> how would you describe Shivers? It's. Hmm. It's a. It's. It's. I'd say it's almost his version of the zombie film. Yes, I think that's about right. That it's the is... it's it's very much if Cronenberg had decided to do a zombie film, he'd probably uh, Shivers is the closest we'd get. But what makes that interesting? Apparently, it was the most successful Canadian film up to that point. And they wanted it, and they did everything they possibly could to try and disown it. Yeah, apparently, it was Parliament in the Canadian yes. Parliament. They debated its merits because they were like they they looked at it and think they didn't know what to make of it because they're like, 
oh my god, this is the most successful film to come out of you. Yes. And they're looking at it, thinking, oh my god, it's trash. <laughs> it's like, like, <laughs> same things happened in Australia as well. Australia did a similar thing, where the funny thing of Australia, they would often the, the films they tried to import, you know, export were yeah. a lot of their quite art films. Yes. But yeah, the problem yeah. was a lot of the films that were coming out of Australia were like these gruesome exploitation films, and the Australians were like, "Oh God, we can't show this to the rest of the world. <laughs> like, what, what, what will people think? You know, what is the rest of the world going to think of us? Like, what, are they going to think we're a bunch of, you know, creepy monsters?" Do you think that? Do you think they had the conversation similar to that of the uh, the, uh, the Simpsons episode? Andy! Well, apparently, apparently <laughs> the Australians hated that episode <laughs> i wonder apparently why. it went down very very badly in australia <laughs> I, but the same thing happened it. in the same things happened in britain at the time with the arts council where the arts council famously would fund anything yes you turned up to them it was almost the golden age of theater in britain yes. where you could literally just turn up ask them can we, can we have a budget for this for this 10 hour production that, you know we <laughs> want to do and they'd go yeah sure have it yeah like what's the famous one is um Oh, God, what's his name? Um, Ken Campbell. Yes. When he did his version of Illuminatus. <laughs> and it, it's about 10 hours long. <laughs> and it got funded, but it also gave Jim Broadbent one of his first ever roles. Hey, Every Cloud. Uh, and Bill Nye, isn't it? Yeah, well, almost and, Every and Cloud. There's loads of people in there. Yeah. There's, it's very, it's a very strange place to start. But yeah, Ken Campbell's another thing entirely, because that man just seemed to have started a lot of people's careers, which is weird. But yeah, as I said about the Canadian film industry, this I'm quite baffled that this got made after Shippers, you know, but they actually decided, all right, we'll give him another chance. Oh, I'm sure he won't come up with something sort of parasitic. Yeah, that's the bit that surprised me. I was expecting them, you know, like, do you think they'd go, maybe we should be more selective in who we're giving this to? Or was the Canadian film industry so... You know, so quiet that they were just desperate to fund things. Possibly. I mean, you know, it's it's a really interesting period of time in cinema anyway. Mm. Um, you know, because, you know, we... Like you well, said, it's, it's the... post-Vietnam. It's... In America, you've got the whole um, New Hollywood things going on. So yeah. American films have reached a sort of very interesting period of when the... Well, the auteur sort of thing has come in, so... yes. The sort of Absolutely. the rise of the American auteur. So you've got your Spielberg has just come, you know, has come around. Coppola, yeah, Scorsese. They're all these very interesting filmmakers, all making very interesting films. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And it's an interesting period for films. A very fertile period in film, I think. I think fertile Before... is an interesting word. Whilst we're talking about a David exactly. Cronenberg film, but that's the thing. After you know, it's is sort of in very. I say seventies is one of the best periods in film history when it comes to sheer creativity and the stuff that was being the quality of stuff being produced absolutely, as well absolutely i think it's before um it was sort of returned to orthodoxy in the 80s yeah yeah sort of yeah studio system had kind of reined everyone back in again yeah well you know when you start sort of you know you get these incredible films mm. that, that that come out that have this real you know that are auteur driven mm. um and then they realize that there's a lot of money to be made from them mm. And that's where, you know, you get the, you know, we get the right, you know, you, you can see with Jaws, I guess, and Jaws and Star Wars, you can Are see the, ones the rise of the super blockbuster. Which kind of kill it off somewhat. They kind of kill off that sort of more auteur driven yeah, era. Yeah, I think. I think that's a really good, yeah, I think there's a case to be sort of argued with that. Because the studios start going, oh, franchises, yes. big blockbusters, this is where, yeah, you know, this is where it's at now. Yeah. 
and we kind of haven't quite let the shadow of that. We've, we've had comebacks, like in the 90s, I think we had a bit of a comeback to that. And I think in recent years, we've had a bit of a comeback to some very interesting filmmakers coming around again. Oh, I think so. And I think when, you, when we see films like uh, The Witch mm. and Kill List... And these, the Lighthouse, for example. The you know. Lighthouse, yeah. Um, still haven't seen that yet. Still haven't well, seen with, that. I'd rec- very much recommend it. Um, th- they pop up every now and again and sort of, mm. you know, it's you know, it, it's it very, very interesting. And I think with the advent of Netflix, um, mm. where they get to, you know, we get to see films like I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House, mm. um, which is superb, which is absolutely and superb. films which would never get made by a major studio anymore. No, no, absolutely. It's like, I think A24 is one of the most interesting ones because they're putting out some of the most unusual films. Yeah. But are getting mainstream releases. Same for, like, um, Blumhouse. I have actually quite like Blumhouse's model of they kind of release loads of trashy horror films and they'll do something really interesting. Well, you put the money in the bank. Yeah, and even they'll fund someone a very interesting film. Like, isn't Blumhouse, they put out Jordan Peele films, haven't they? Yes, yes, they have, yeah. And I quite like that model, but they sort of put out these sort of kind of low-budget trashy ones. And then something amazing will come out in the meantime. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It feels very much like something like a lot of the old studio films used to do, you know, to put out loads of B-movies, then something really interesting would come along. Yeah, now coming back to to this... The you know what you know one of the things that sort of really really struck me um, mm. about this because it's not a massive budget film. Oh, you can tell it's you know, very much seventies exploitation. Yeah, I mean, I think the, I mean, I think it was uh, about, was it maybe five hundred thousand dollars? I think it was made for. Um, and what I love about it is the fact that Cronenberg is able to create a very real. Um, outbreak situation mm. and f- the, the scene on the subway is um, where Rose's best friend is on the train you know is on the train and then the guy or the woman who completely loses it and then bites the one guy mm. and you know there's absolute chaos in that train and everybody is trying to get out and push and shove it's real you, you get a re- feels almost documentarian and like mm. seeing everybody piling out through the doors but what Cronenberg has done there which is absolutely fantastic is he's taken a very very compact situation yeah and has made you know with possibly no more than a handful of extras made mm. it feel a much bigger scenario mm. and it's, it's it's a very real scene it's a very, oh, yeah. very real scene. And I think well, that there are lots of echoes that you see within that um, sort of shown in real life. You know, you look mm. at some of the sort of, you know, the terrorist situations that have, you know, that have appeared uh, where the public have got involved and they've sort of overpowered somebody. And, they you know, mm. you've got um, incidences where, you know, outbreaks um, taking place as we currently are. But it well, feels real. Well, I find it interesting about this, seeing about the whole, you know, the vampire connection in the mm. film. Because what I could, you could almost see it, he's taking the, the vampire away from, you know, the old castles in Transylvania and, you know, from the past and taking it very much into the modern world. Yes. Yeah, I think. And I it's a very, as I say, it's a very modern take on the vampire. It's a much more unsettling take. Well, it's got the one thing I can say is a big theme in most of Cronenberg's horror films is, well, the best way to describe it, the big theme of them 
it's the body fighting against itself. Yes. It's the sort of the the enemy is literally coming from within. Absolutely. And what I mean, a really good example of that is the character of Rose. Mm. Is that actually, um, is she aware That's of the her thing. condition? Because mm. she is almost completely oblivious to what's going on around her. Mm. It's an unusual one because we can, we, when comparing it to Shivers, how it's depicted is very different because you can see in Shivers that a lot of it is is women sexually under threat. Yes. And in this, it's the other way around. This, the woman is a sexual threat, which, you know, a lot can be read into that. Obviously, a lot can, you know, there's probably a lot can be written on that subject. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, and I'm sure somebody has. Somebody far more qualified than us. Oh, definitely. But I think one of my friends in uni actually did an essay literally right. on this literally on this topic. Yeah. About the monstrous female. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's a really interesting idea, isn't it? Mm. Because actually, is she really a monster or is she a victim in this? Mm. That's the thing. It's quite. It's a lot of that blurring of the lines. This is also calls into the question about the you know the ethics of science as well. Yeah, and I mean it's... even the fact of his choice. I mean, what's interesting is obviously he's cast a you know he cast an adult um, film actress mm. in this role, and originally he wanted Sissy Spacek. Yes, and apparently, what was the reasoning why they couldn't give us it? Budget she, or something? No, she. Uh, eventually, they felt Ivan Reitman felt that she didn't have enough sex appeal. Oh, and I read because of her accent as well. Yeah, they they could she they, they couldn't buy her as a Canadian. <laughs> wow, they couldn't, you know, because where is she from? Um, she's from yeah, she's from Texas. Yeah, yeah, and they, they 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 just couldn't buy her as a tech, you know, as a because a lot of the actors in this are actually Americans. Yeah, a lot a lot of the lead actors are actually American, you know, kind of American character actors. Yeah, but they just couldn't buy her as a Canadian. They were just all looking at oh, she's it kind of takes us out with it. Which is interesting, because I've always found it interesting about Cronenberg, is how all of his book systems are set in Canada. Yes, oh, completely, yeah, yeah, yeah. so unusual for a film, you know, because Canada's often playing somewhere else. Well, yeah, that's quite interesting, but but people do sort of, um, I think, and I mean, I think actually Toronto um, in particular, sort of architecturally speaking, particularly during the 60s and 70s, there is almost this sort of um, this sort of very um, neo-gothic feel to it, mm. which suits the say, you know, especially suits the settings of this film. Because I think this is this where is this one set? Is it in Montreal? Yes, Montreal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, set in Montreal, and yeah, well, it's, I think Canada worked really well in these because it's got that it's that coldness to it. There's off. There's that. In these early Cronenberg films, in particular, yeah, yeah, there's absolutely. this eerie coldness to them. There's just this sort of you sort of look at them, and as I said earlier, you said clinical. Yeah, and I mean, sort of one of the things that you sort of you know that that, that Cronenberg has is that you add this sort of clinical biological mm. horror, mm. Um, and that idea of like you said, the body fighting itself. And mm. then what happens when that biology, you know, when when biology takes over mm. um, and then you set it in these sort of, you know, these gothic, the, the, the sort of, you know, this sparse gothic, almost like um, when you look at the apartments, they almost look quite futuristic. Mm. Well, it's that modern. It's almost like a gothic modernism. Yeah. It's yeah. like a sort of, yeah, a modern take on the gothic, like taking this, you know, taking as a taking it away from 
you know, the old dingy castles. Yeah, absolutely. And into absolutely. a sort of cold and clinical modern world. Yeah. But absolutely. also about the sort of, you know, the body being the enemy in it. Yeah. And I think that's something which is fundamentally more terrifying than a lot of like supernatural creatures because it's as well things like that exist you know you know there's like things like cancer illnesses which develop you know will literally develop inside you yeah yeah and, and that's that's for a lot of people 10 times more terrifying than a vampire because you know that's real absolutely and it's it's you know and if you think about the you know there's also this sense of detachment and mm. almost, you know, you think of the character of Rose. She spends pretty much, even when she's with people, she's alone. It's always this disconnect. There's a sort of detachment from everyone else. Yeah, and I know, like, when he was talking, you know, I think Cronenberg, I think it was an article in The Guardian. Um, yeah, that's right. I've read The Guardian. Um, is that he, he talked about this idea that actually sort of um, existentially and functionally... Um, we're alone, even if mm. theoretically we're not. And I think that is something that comes across very much so in his um, in his early works. You can see it in The Brood, I'd say. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. His lack of communication, isn't he? You can clearly, well, fa- fa- marriage is literally broken apart in that. Yeah, yeah. There's serious, in a lot of his films you can tell there's disconnect between people. There's always this... Like, even in scanners, you can see it, where there's yeah. literally people who can hear people of, you know, everyone else's thoughts. Yeah. But even then, they're disconnected from everyone else. Yeah. They're all on the fringes of everyone. So a lot of his characters always feel disconnected from everyone. They're always on the fringe. Yeah. It's... Yeah. And it's almost sort of this, because um, I know he's a big fan of Sartre. He's a huge... Oh, I can... He's, he's a, a bit of... A... He's a you can tell Cronenberg's huge... an existentialist. Yeah. Um, but his, film, his films almost feel Nietzschean. Mm, there's a sort of nihilism to them. Yeah, and I think this one in particular, oh, um, has it, that sort of is that sort of is 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 nihilistic. This might running be running through it through and through. In a way, not accounting for like it's one. Of, I wouldn't say it's as gory as some of his other films. Oh, absolutely not. But... However. In when terms you get of his... to that scene where he said, where the surgery, where the doctor goes bonkers in surgery, and he says, "Yes, I need something to cut with." Mm. I did wince, and well, the, thing the lingeringness about... of him working the scissors in her hand. Yes, but the thing about I've noticed with this sum compared to Lobs Ever Works, despite it, you know, not being as like gruesome as The Fly, because you know, I yes. think The Fly is probably one of his grisliest, you know. But oh, yeah, but with this, it's one of his most—I'd say—almost unpleasant films. I think so. Yeah, there's a very genuine sort of quite nastiness to it. There's a genuine sort of, particularly in the last scene. Yeah. Oh, they, a, there is that sort of, and I mean, this is where you can sort of almost make a comparison to *Night of the Living Dead*. Um, mm. Is that sort of, you know? And again, it goes back to the detachment. It goes back to that idea of aloneness. Um, mm. Is that idea that actually, when we're done, when the, when the body is finished, mm. we can just be disposed of? Well, that's the, the true tragedy in the film that she is reduced to just being waste at the end. Yes. And is that like it is? You know, I'm not. You know, it, 
this is just me p- putting things in Cronenberg's will, will, you know, into his mouth. But is it is it him trying to make a comment about how society treats people that you know people are just thrown onto the scrap heap when they're done? Yeah, well, yeah, like, absolutely, absolutely. And it's you, a, you think it's about a, that scene where the you know the um, the the boyfriend is driving to try; he's still looking for her. And the you know one of the infected jump onto the bonnet of his car, mm. and then we hear a gunshot. Mm. There's a spray of blood across the screen. He's mm. left completely shocked, and then there's a guy with a rifle on top of a garbage truck. Two guys jump out in um, like hazmat suits, mm. peel the body off, wash his windscreen down, and move him on. Yeah, this is yeah. When it gets that part of him, because. The film does take a complete left turn. You think it's, you know, you think it's just going to be this straightforward, almost like a, a monster for you know, a monster oh, movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then it turns into this very, it does, it does turn very crazies like. Oh and yeah. And in this, and perhaps even more bleak and nihilistic because. Crazies is a pretty bleak film. Oh, crazy! I, I mean, the Crazies is not a perfect film, and I've said I, I've talked mm. about the Crazies quite a bit. It's a, it's a, it's a very film. flawed film. Yes, but. But it's out of all of Romero's films, it's one of his bleaker works, I'd say. Oh, Perhaps not as bleak as Day of the Day Dead, because I think Day of the Dead might be one of his most. Yeah, a... that's that's a bit of a sledgehammer in terms I do of like, his it... I'm pissed off. Oh, I do love that film. You can clearly tell us by made by a man who is not in a very good place. No, he you can is... tell. I think he is. Uh, he's angry. Oh, it's, it's probably his angriest film. Yeah. And his most, I know he's tried to downplay any political aspects of Dawn of the Dead, even though there's some blatant stuff in there, which <laughs> I'm baffled that he didn't see any of that. But with Day of Dead, you can clearly see that he's trying to say something a bit more concrete. Yeah. Maybe not coherent, perhaps, but very angry. You know, you can tell as a man who is kind of at the end of his tether. Oh, yeah, completely. Completely. And that's what makes, I think that makes Day of Dead a very interesting film to look at, because... You can tell is that much more of a cynicism in that compared to the previous two films, which are already quite cynical and bleak. Yeah, yeah, completely. completely. But it's an even more of a, a genuine anger, which I think you can see in Rabbit as well. Yeah, I think so. And I think um, what I love in this is the World Health Organization answer to it. Mm. Let's kill everyone. Mm. Forget it. Ah, it's past the point now. Shut up, shop. Thing- Just shoot everyone. That's what I find interesting is, is you know, drawing comparisons to what's going on now, is yeah. that some people's reactions to the current situation has been not far off this. Well, yeah. Not, not, not obviously go out and shoot people, but it has genuinely been sort of, you know, well, you know, let some people... Yeah. And let a couple of people die, you know, just fit, fin, you know, fin up thin the ranks. Thin the herd, thin and the that's herd. Quite, that's quite, you know, that's scary stuff. Yeah. Is that in a situation that your life is seen as forfeit... Absolutely, absolutely. Fact, and, and there is that feeling to this, isn't there? Oh, it, people's lives are forfeit. But I know the people who've, who've become forfeit are just regular people. Yes. They, it's just the average, you know, just people on the street and all that, you know, just the average working people. Yeah, yeah. And I, their lives are being put, you know, and they're not even taking very good measures to counteract it. You know, it's literally they've gone to the most drastic measure. Yeah, and it's like, and the other thing I, I, that sort of strikes me about the whole thing is the ease of the infection. Mm. You know, that guy who gets bitten 
um, on the um, on the subway on the on the on the train. He's then the same guy who bites the other that that the boy in the the shopping mall, mm. where we then get the 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 police officer gunning him down and then mm. you know eventually shooting, you know Santa taking one for the team, but, which is a very uh, it's a very that's why I was the image actually maybe got me want to see the film because somebody posted a gif of it on Twitter, <laughs> and I sort of looked at it. And, what on earth is it? You know, like what on earth is going on? So I had to sort of check it out then because like, yeah. And I wasn't quite ready for it when they, when I asked them about the film, they did sort of describe it as being, prepare yourself. It is a bleak watch. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it despite is a that clip making downer of an ending, yeah, or despite that the clip making it look like oh, this is a bit weird and zany. It's it's not in throughout the film. It's quite. And in context, the scene is quite horrible as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because you know, and I mean, the weapon here um, is you know is Marilyn Chambers. She is weaponized, mm. um, and she is only you know throughout the film she is just seen as an object, mm. an object of uh, just just something to be objectified by men. Mm. And she... well, literally, who's the first? The first person she attacks is a man who attempts to rape her. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and it's that sort of. Um, and again, that scene itself is very, very, very strange. Mm. Where he sort of, cre- you know, he hears a scream. He goes in. Is he helping her? Is he not? Mm. Um, is he taking? A- is he about to take advantage of her? Mm. Is it? You know, it, this is sort of. It it is that sort of. Uh, you this sort of psychosexual imagery that oh, yeah. that Cronenberg is. Oh, using. this film is this film is particularly full of it. Oh yeah, I mean the fact that you know. And she develops a, um, you know, another organ on mm. her body. And the scene where the doctor himself, you know, before the doctor gets um, uh, infected, where he's sort of carrying an examination of her, it's sort of all, there's a sort of sort of fetishist voyeurism about that. Mm. Um, can you imagine that that moment when the Canadian government uh, who funded it, they're all sat there going, oh God, he's done it again. He's done it again. If you don't know what the response was, do you have any idea how they responded to this film? Because, well, I know they went batshit over um, over shivers, but actually, yes. I think they kind of let this one slip. Hmm. I don't think there was the same kind. I'm sure somebody will completely um, and sort of, you know, come back and say, "Well, no, they went bonkers." Or, but it, you don't get the same sort of just doing just the general research and things about it. You don't get that same kind of like outrage mm. that they had i wonder um, why was it changing you know obviously changing sensibilities in canada or was it or did they sort of realize the success I think, of shivers they I sort of went oh. possibly a little bit of both really i think yeah that's sort of like you know maybe um they became desensitized to it yeah i think so i think so quite possibly it's a bit it's perhaps a bit desensitized also Maybe this one doesn't feel quite as exploitative as Shivers. No, no, and I mean, bizarrely, you know, the fact that the lead is an adult, you know, you know, is, mm. you know, is an actress known for being sort of in in porn. Mm. Um, but um, there isn't that sort of. I mean, they could have gone a lot further, couldn't they? They could have been a lot sleazier. Oh, absolutely, and it never feels sleazy. Mm. Like even. The whole, you know, the scene, the attempted rape scene. Like in some films, it often is filmed in a way where you're sort of going, 
Ugh. someone's enjoying this far too much. You know, it's like this is. But even then, in this, it feels sort of unpleasant to watch. You sort of feel a bit dirty watching it, but not for. Well, for the reasons they did intend it, you can clearly tell that they are intending it to be an unpleasant scene. Oh, absolutely. I think it is. Um, and this film is unpleasant at times. Oh, yeah. I'd say it's one of his more difficult films to watch. Not in terms of, like, you know, any other, the other films are difficult in terms of the sort of gore and the violence for some people. That is difficult to watch. Yeah, we're not talking in the same kind of level where, you know, bits are dropping off people as in mm. the fly or... Some of the the darker moments of Dead Ringers, mm. but this um, is more subject matter and the sort of tone. Yeah, I think it's more unpleasant. I think so. I the think sort of so. Tone of it is bleak. I'd say this and The Brood are probably two of his most nihilistic films in a way. Oh, I think so. And I mean, like I... The Brood, you can tell as a very angry man has made that. Yes. Oh, you can he, tell The Brood has been railing made against by... something, isn't he? He's railing really against his, his ex-wife, basically. Yeah. Yeah, you can tell as a man who's not in a good place. He made that in not a good place. And like, when you look at that, you know, I mean, for example, I think one of the, I think the scene that is really quite impactful is where Joel Silver's character goes home because he wants to check mm. on his wife and his children. Yeah. Um, and he so you know it, it's the sort of complete reverse of the "Hi, honey, I'm home" moment, mm. where he's walking up the steps. Uh, you know, the stairs of his house and he's calling and you can see the concern and then he goes into the baby's bedroom and it's not there and then he finds the blood patch and then he looks that there's the sort of little bathing thing and he flips the top up and the baby's, it's just the blood in there. Mm. And then his wife dives out and attacks him. Which is, even by Cronenberg standards, is a very unpleasant scene. Yeah, it is. And, you know, actually, when you think about in terms of level of gore, mm. it's not that gory. It's just the the idea of it is the worst thing. Absolutely. And I think it's sort of that sort of idea of um, home is like the safest place you could be. Mm. And the family should be the safest place. Mm. That is that sort of like, and then you get bang, you get this moment where his wife dives out of the cupboard and is, is attacking him and he sort of, really doesn't know quite what to do with himself and he's you know it's that sort of almost you know this baffling moment of um my i'm at home my baby's dead my my wife has as my wife eaten the baby what, what is going on you don't you know it's that sort of like oh my god what is happening and that sort of idea of the safe place is no chaos and then outside there is the increasing chaos Mm. Um, and this film film does ramp that up really, really well, really slowly, mm. um, because at times it does drift a little bit. Yes, it it's one of his quite a short film as well. It's not particularly hour and thirty. It's not it's yeah, it's an hour a and thirty standard length. Yes, yes, but it does sort of um, it does meander at times. I yeah, it does it, feel like there's points in there. Where I think Cronenberg is kind of filling for time a bit. Yeah. Like they are sort of bits where I think you sort of realise, he's probably looking for the script and realise, oh, hang on, this is a bit shorter than it should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, mean, I need like, to... Yeah, absolutely. I forgot, I forgot I need to put something here. Yeah. And I mean, the scene, like you said, with the drunken guy who comes in 
Um, I got them a bit mixed up earlier because I was thinking you're talking about the first, the opening bit when they were in the, in the hospital where the guy runs in. Um, mm. But you're talking about, obviously, you're talking about the drunk, the guy who comes in who's drunk. Mm. And then you get that scene where he he staggers into the... Um, into a diner. Into the diner. And again, you know, that sort of, you know, that safe, very homely um, environment. It just well, it's of... a gathering place. You know, it's the place where everyone... Yeah. Every, it's it's an it's you know it's a, it's a standard gathering place you know somewhere in public, and you should you should feel safe in public. Yes, well, this that which is quite an interesting um, which is quite an interesting take really, isn't it? If you think about, um, you know, really we should all feel safe when we're out, um, mm. and we should um, feel that we can go to places, and in the current climate, we can't do that. Well, that's the thing about, you know, uh, saying about, you know, I said earlier, but moving away from the sort of old fashioned horror of, you know, the castle, the forest, you know, the sort of dark and scary forest. Yes. Is that it's literally it has been brought home. Yes. And I've noticed that's a big thing in the 70s is that horror kind of comes home. Yeah. And, well, and again, I think, you know, particularly f- um, in terms of sort of North American cinema. Oh, definitely. It is that sort of. Um, it's that idea that actually, for the first time, and I mean, this is reflected in films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm. Um, the horror has come home. That horror has come home. Because... Which people were seeing from watching, you know, Vietnam on their TVs. Like, literally, the horror was being shown on their television. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, there is this sort of. <sighs> you get this feeling that, you know, obviously, war was something. And the horrors of war was something that were sort of not really seen and not really, you know, people understood that war was bad and, you know, people died and everybody, mm. you know, people lost these things, lost people. And they were awful, horrific things that happened. But actually, for the first time, it's there. It's in color. It mm. is not somebody speaking in you know, in, in Britain, you know, if we're thinking about in Britain, we've got the, the BBC, you know, this is the BBC with our received yes. pronunciation. And it wasn't John Wayne, you know, like in Sands of Iwo Jima or Longest Day. No. You, I know, mean, you, know, it was... you, you think about the kickback that John Wayne yeah. had when he made the Green Beret. Oh, yeah, which was completely, as a film, it's completely misguided at the time. You still look at that and think, Wow, read the room. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, this is, you still look and go, wow, you could not have made a more inappropriate film. No, no, you couldn't have. And, and, well, I think the public sort of rejected it, didn't it? Because it was like, nobody wanted, nobody wanted it at the time. Because everyone's like, looking at it. But you can see it in every aspect of American cinema. Even films that have got nothing to do with the subject. Like, you can even see it in musicals at the time. In the late sixties, you had like the decline of like the mega musical. Yeah, because nobody wanted to see it anymore because it wasn't reflecting life anymore. No, no. People kind of didn't want escapism anymore. Well, for a time, because people were sort of, you know, it was everywhere, and people kind of wanted things that reflected it a bit. Yes. And the younger generation become what did you know? They were sort of that sort of us and them thing had begun. So you know, you had so, films like e- Easy Rider had come along. So yeah. these were all films which were for the youth culture because they were the, they you know they were rebelling against the past and the films obviously are reflecting that because they're going against the early conventions because Hollywood had kind of got complacent. Oh, completely. Yeah, it's I... sort of been doing this, you know, go, running for the motions. Yeah. Now, the the sort of 
I mean, he's been described as the king, isn't he? The David Cronenberg of, of mm. venereal horror, I suppose. And this is that sort of, I think this is, like you said, we, we talked earlier on, this is him becoming a more confident filmmaker. This is his second feature. Mm. Um, for you, what are the standout moments in this film? Oof. Well, for me, one it's got to be when you first see the actual appendage is one of those. Yeah. It, you know, it is a shocking image. It is. And it's, it's also, you can, you know, because that sort of thing wasn't really seen in films before, something that unpleasant looking. Yeah, absolutely. But for me, he said about the bit with the baby earlier, that's one thing that does stick out. But the image that always sticks out to me is the last scene. Yeah. Just completely left, it just completely takes me by surprise. It is a... Um... Like I said, I think it's up there. It's right up there. And I think sort of people don't give this one the credit that it should really mm. with Night of the Living Dead. Of having that sort of very bleak ending. And also both endings say a lot as well. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, and again, we get that guy, um, you know, this this sort of almost like disposable humanity. Mm. Um, and of course, with Night of the Living Dead, you have the sort of race angle is is... Absolutely. is tight into that as well which another thing Romero sort of came onto by accident well yeah and it which was, Romero that... was very weird he's very good at finding a theme but completely by accident just sort of meander he sort of kind of you know he wanders into themes yes and they sort of evolve organically isn't they really yeah and the weird thing is he doesn't own them either he doesn't sort of go oh yeah I intended that completely he's always there sort of I guess no I didn't mean that yeah yeah but he could sound really smart if he said if he if he went along with it yeah, absolutely. You can sound quite intellectual, but he's sort of like going, "Oh, did I?" Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We'll go cool. with that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, you know, and I mean, with this, um, I think for me, it's the, it's that final, not not the, it's the scene just before her body gets thrown into the, um, gets thrown into the garbage. Yeah. Is the scene where she's brought that you know she's had the, the confrontation with with her boyfriend who's sort of you know um where he's fight he realizes that she's actually the person who started it all and she's got away from him mm. and then she picks up the guy and brings him home mm. and then she thinks well i've just drunk you know he's on the phone to her and they're having that conversation um and he knows what's going to happen but she's completely oblivious to it mm. um and then that person gets up um, almost Romero-like, Romero-esque. Yeah. Um, and it's his reaction um, to it. It's, you know, it's it's Hart's uh, reaction. Um, and that scene, and Frank Moore, um, in that moment, gives an absolutely heartbreaking performance. Uh, and just, just how completely helpless he is to do anything with it. And he's smashing up the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's right up there with, um, you know, where what's his name loses it completely at the end of um, the witch of uh, uh, the Witchfinder General. Mm. It's that, you know, it's the complete breakdown. Like no one in this film comes out unscathed. Oh no, and I don't. Whether think... it's physically or emotionally. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's that sort of, um, you know, and it's interesting the fact that you know when you think about her name. Um, you know, the fact that the character's name Rose. Mm. Um, Every Rose has his thorn. Has his thorn, quite literally in this. Yeah. Um, you know, this is, 
this is a film that is not subtle. No. <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but for me, that stand it is that standout moment. The scene on the sub on the in the train, I think, is absolutely superb. Um, like I said, Joel Silver, um, he gets extra points because he's the voice of the creep in um, Creepshow, in the Creepshow oh. movies. Yeah, and I mean, he's you know he I mean he passed away in 1989, um, but he's you know he did he was the voice of the creep. Um, he's done loads and loads and loads. Um, he was in the Equalizer. Um, you know, he, I think he had something close to something like, um, I think he had something like nearly a hundred credits by the time he was done. Uh, old school character actors. Yeah, absolutely. And he had a great voice, mm. really deep resonating voice. Um, you know, this is, this is a, a, you know, it's interesting coming back to this film after not seeing it for so many years. Yeah. Well, I've only recently watched it for the first time. So it was interesting getting you know fresh and an old perspective yeah it is so out of like you know you the cronenberg films that you'd see where would you place this in his sort of um hmm. in his films hmm. that's a good question i wouldn't say it's one of his best entries i say even though it's him maturing as a filmmaker yeah he's still not quite there but you can see he's becoming what he's going to become because hmm. personally my favorite Cronenberg uh, film is Videodrome. Do you know what? I need to go back and see Videodrome. Mm. Um, because I think I watched it when I was much, much... I was far too young to watch it and really get to grips with it. Yes. Um, I am always a little bit uncomfortable now watching James Woods in anything. Because he's awful person. Yes. <laughs> he's an awful human being. Um... Which again, it, you know, I suppose you know, interesting take on on Cronen, you know, in terms of Cronenberg, is using 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 him in this role. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I need to go back and uh, it's and have an a look. At interesting that. film because what I find interesting about that in particular, it's almost a change. You can see the transition from Cronenberg from his horror days coming into his art house. You know, his sort of later art house career. Yes. So yes. it's almost like the sort of touchstone film between them. Mm. But yeah. he's he's matured even more in a way. Like he's starting to become like a more coherent vision is coming through. Yeah. Like yeah. he's got bigger ideas outside the genre. Like he's almost he's sort of thinking beyond the genre now. Yeah. And I, he's becoming I, almost more philosophical. And I think that you know the the idea you know you can see you know the influence of Sartre and the existentialism mm. and that sort. Or of... you can clearly tell that in his earlier films as well. I think the brood with all like the psychology side of it. Yes. Like the big theme of Brute is one of the big things is like psych- is psychotherapy. So you can tell that Cronenberg likes his Freud. Oh, yeah. You can I, tell I, the man is interested in Freud at least. Yes, yes. I think he's got a pass in. Um... <laughs> in fact, there's probably a lot of Freudian analysis you can do on Cronenberg. That's one head that you wouldn't want to spend too much time sort of. No. Him and David Lynch, I think, would mm-hmm. that would be quite a sort of well, dark place to kind of. But they're also. In. God sends for people for film critics because they people who you can analyze and just try to figure them out. Oh yeah, I mean, look, let's they're be built perfect. for analysis. Yeah, well, you know, let's be fair. I think in the in the space of the you know the the, the fifty minutes plus that we've been talking now, we've talked about um, <laughs> venereal horror, horror, existentialism, Sartre, uh, hmm. <laughs> and a few other you know where we're actually you know where essentially you could boil this film down to being. 
another zombie film by all, or, all a vampire all, film. All, yeah, but it's obviously with Cronenberg, it's not going to be a, a it's not going to be a typical vampire film. No, no. That's the thing. That's the beauty of it. Yeah. But in terms of what you were saying before, in terms of like the sort of Cronenberg canon, it does exist in a sort of weird place in it. So yeah, oh, so out of the out of all the Cron, I know you said the mm-hmm. video drone. So where would you rate them then? Where would you put where, in a sort of maybe a top four or five? Where would you put? Of it my then? my top five, I'd say I say video drone is probably my first. Second is probably Scanners. Mm-hmm. I I very much like Scanners. Yeah. Michael Ironside is amazing in it. He's got one of the best voices in film history, I'd say. Oh, he's, he's he's a wonderful, wonderful actor who can veer between completely over the top and uh, subtle. Yes, yeah. Which is quite difficult, I found, with some people. Yes, and sometimes he'll do it in the same scene. Yeah, he does it a lot in Scanners. Yes, he does. Yeah. Um, third, I'll probably say the fly. Just I think because it is. Very much, Cronenberg has matured a lot in that. Yes, yeah. You can tell it's probably one of his most coherent films in terms of how it's made. You know, you can tell there's a sort of, I don't know, more of a, a refined film from him. Yes, I think so. Uh, then I'd say the, well, I'd say the Brood. Mm, I very much like the Brood. I very much, I don't know why, I just have great fondness for it. Yeah. And I think, I, I'm not quite sure why, there's something about it I genuinely, I'll have to look into it a little bit more, you know, because I think there's, there's a lot there which is worth looking into. Yeah. And five, I'd probably put, um, a bit of a strange one, I actually put Naked Lunch at five, because I genuinely have a great love for that film. Hmm, interesting. And I can't put into words why, I just got a great love for it. But yeah, Rabbit, I say, it's a very unusual one in this canon. Yeah. It's not many people's favourite from him. No. But... I think it's worth, you know, it's obviously it's worth revisiting and it's worth sort of looking into and worth analysing a bit. I think so, most definitely. I mean, my, I think my top five, um, I put The Fly at number one because I love that film. Mm. It's a great, great film. Uh, it's probably Ga- his, of his horror films, it's his best made horror film. Yeah. Oh, in terms of, like, you can clearly tell it's him sort of moving up to the big leagues with it. Yeah. Um, my second one would be A History of Violence. I just haven't got around to seeing it. Oh, it's I superb. It's I haven't seen superb. much of his later work, to be honest. I haven't seen Dead Ringers yet. Oh, I, I was going to say my next one then would be Dead Ringers. Everyone seems to say that's one of his best. It is great. It's absolutely superb. And Jer- if until told, it's a lot more mature film from him as well. I think so, absolutely. And Jeremy Irons is superb in it. He's Jeremy Irons and Jeremy Irons. Yes, yes. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so Dead Ringers. I, I love that. Um, hmm. East And then... I would say it's a difficult one. I like the Dead Zone. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really, really. I think that's a great adaptation of Stephen King's work. I saw that a very, very, very long time ago, and I don't have many memories of it because I see a lot of people say it doesn't very much fit in his horror canon. No, it's like he almost feels like a gun for hire. Yeah, it, it, that's what I've heard from it. Like people sort of almost don't even consider it part of his horror canon because it's so alien to the rest of it but it's so well done mm. it's so well done and a number five you would have to uh, um, is eastern promises i think mm. it's, i think it's a wonderful film which i still haven't seen this because i've been told that he's what he's a very unusual director because you know he got started off in horror films yeah. then he completely took a left turn yeah oh completely and he sort of walked away you know it's not that you know i mean like some people would even throw Nightbreed in there 
mm. um, which suffered horrifically at the hands of the studio. Yes. Um, but, um, like I said, Eastern Promise is a great film. History of Violence is superb. Mm. Um, well, fl- he's bec- he became a very respected director. He's become... Well, yeah, that is the sort of, you know, it's taken him until he's got to his, like, 60s, 70s to become respectable. But that's the thing, because he can... I think he was he always wanted to go off and make stuff like that. But obviously he needed to work his way through. Whatever he needed to work his way through, yeah. I think. Like, for example, he's always sort of kept a foot, or what I've gathered, a little foot in his transgressive past, particularly yes. when he did Crash. Hmm... Yeah. But I think he's sort of keeping a sort of a bit of a wink back to his past there. Yes, I think so. I think that's a fair. I think that's a fair assumption. To make. And also controversy as well, because I remember the Daily Mail tried to get Crash banned. And then yeah, yeah. There was a, so like you know he's, he never he, you know he never he sort of he always can still stir, stir a bit of controversy to this even to this day. Yes, yes. He hasn't lost his touch in terms of that respect. Do you know what's interesting? The, I saw Crash in the Coliseum in Aberdeen. Really? Yeah. <laughs> wow. It's also one of the very few J.G. Ballard adaptations. Yeah, not and it's a only, film. There's only two more I can name. And one's Empire of the Sun, which is, out of all of his works, is the easiest one to adapt. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. High Rise. Mm, I, haven't seen, I haven't seen High Rise. High Rise is very good. It's an interesting film. It's a very, actually an incredibly accurate adaptation. Mm. Almost slavishly so. You can sort of say that Ben Wheatley almost just basically adapted the book into a film. Right. And I like the fact he kept it as a period piece. Yeah. He made it, he basically made it I can best way to describe it. It's the seventies, but the sort of near future seventies. Yeah. Yeah. So Are like you a jumping sort of... up and down on the bed because I can hear your mic hitting something. No, sorry, it's just No, no, just don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, there's a but no, it's an interesting film. Yeah, and I mean I think one of the things that we've got here and it's the same whenever you look at Cronenberg. At, at there are so many different avenues and so many different ways mm. and lots of rabbit holes that you can fall down. Mm. Um, now, here comes the big decision. Okay. How would you score this one out of 10? Mm. I would probably put it in at a 7 out of 10. Do you know what? That's a, I would. I come in a little bit higher. I'd say yeah. 7.5. I was thinking about somewhere between a 7 or 7.5, you know, and sort I, of. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think it's a fair, I think it's a middle effort for him. Yes. You know, it's I think it's great Im- moments. I think it's important in terms of his filmography. Absolutely. It's an important place in his filmography. In fact, you can sort of see it's a turning point for him. Yeah. In terms of his sort of development as a filmmaker. Yeah. But it hasn't quite reached the heights that he'd reach no. just yet. No. no. He's on his way there. Yes. But you can, it's sort of like, you know, marking, like, you know, a, an essay from school or something. <laughs> you know, you'd give Showing it like progress. a... progress. You'd give it like a C or a B minus. So like, you're sort of going, you know, there's, there's something good. You know, I can see where you're going. Yeah. But it needs a little bit more work. Or it depends if you're being lazy like me. B plus, well analysed. <laughs> That's a lot of my essays. <laughs> yeah, yeah, B plus, well analysed. Um... <laughs> Liam, we've talked for an hour about this bad boy. Um, is there anything you can think of that we missed? Well, say about one thing, saying about J.G. Ballard. I yeah. can see a lot of Ballard in some of his films. 
especially you know the, it's obviously the transgressive side of it. But it's also the urban. A lot of his films are set in cities, especially this one. You can see a lot of very, very sort of Ballardian sort of settings. I think that's a really good point, actually, and I've never really thought of it like that. That's a really, really good point. Most systems are set in the urban environment, if I'm well, remembering yeah, I correctly. Mean, yeah, yeah. I, I, to be honest with you, um, I think you know, Dead Zone is a little bit more rural, mm. um, uh, and I think Spider Spider's an interesting one, which I slap and go around to see now. I've been told that's a bit of a it's, unusual one. It's hard. That's more it's, psychological, yeah, isn't it's it? It's hard. It's a hard watch. I'm not a. Mm. Do you know what? I, I people will probably, you know, I would say if they weren't in lockdown, they'd be outside my house with pitchforks and torches. Um, but I didn't really enjoy it. It's a hard film to watch, is yeah, it? Yeah, I got kind of, I kind, got kind of bored. Mm. Um, it, it sounds from what I've gathered from other people, it seems like one of those films that is uh, what's the best way to describe it. It's difficult to like. Like a lot of people say, even the people who like it say, you need to watch it in the right mindset. Yeah. I you can't just throw it on. No, you can't I, just throw I mean, it, you know, to be fair, I don't think you can just throw most of Cronenberg's films on. No, if you've got to sort of go in with a little bit of an intention to watch them. Yes. Uh, you know, do you know what I'm in the mood for? A yeah. film where, you know, the, the, the sort of, you know, our lead character has a, has a killer vagina attached to her armpit. Or, you know, or people can make people's heads explode with their mind. Yes. I it's, love it's, the South Park take on that. That's the thing. He's an interesting director. He's probably one of the most interesting voices in horror. Yes, I think so. Well, my friend from uni said who did that essay, when she, she was never a big horror fan. Mm. But she always makes an exception for, for Cronenberg. And I think lots of people do, actually. I, do I think, think lots of people he's do got... make an exception for him. I think because he brings a bit more to the table. Yeah, yeah, completely. completely. Like, it's always something... It's always layers in his films. You can always look... You know, you can always something to look at yes, in them. Yes, I think you're right there. I think you can just dig through right. and you can find so many, like, themes and ideas in there. Yes. Like, for example, as I said, I love Videodrome to Bits and I love the fact that it's, you know, with my film degree, it's all about media theory. Oh, yeah, completely. It's a film literally about media. I mean, I got it's, it. It's like Marshall somebody, McLuhan yeah. as a horror film. I'd like to see somebody teach GCSE media studies via the form of Videodrome. <laughs> I'd love to see that tried because... Well, one and the character pending is, court cases. <laughs> yeah, but one character is basically Marshall McLuhan. Yes, yeah. And yeah. and I quite like the fact that that Cronenberg went, I'm going to make a horror movie based on Marshall McLuhan's theories. <laughs> and if you say that to most people, the people think you're absolutely mental that he went out and did it. Yes. And well, I'm quite impressed that he did that. Yes, absolutely. Well, sir, our time is at an end. As always. Do you know when the last time, well, apart from The Signalman, I think Godzilla might be my last appearance. Yes. And that was last, the year before last? The year before last was 2018. My God. Yes. So we have to make sure that you're back on sooner rather than later. We'll have to. Yes, definitely. Definitely. So, my friend, do you want to tell the people where they can find you on the social media or on the Twitters? Well, at the moment, I I have got my Twitter at Liam M. Jones, 1994. Yes. And if people are interested in the stuff I do, I did set up myself with a Kofi coffee, whatever they call them. Yes. So if they ever want to put anything my way, they can go there as well at coffee.com slash Liam Jones. Fabulous. Liam, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. 
You take That's care, my, my friend. Keep washing no. your hands and stay indoors. No problem. For the audience as well, I'll be seeing you soon. Yes. Thanks for having me. Take care, dude. Okay, once again, I want to say thank you to Liam for being on. Um, it's been like over, well, the Godzilla episode was the last time he was on in like a reviewing kind of capacity. Of course, he was in the Signalman episode, so go and check that out because he is brilliant in that. Um, so once again, thank you, Liam. Hope to speak to you soon. Stay safe. Keep washing your hands. Make sure you're keeping that uh, social distance going. Okay, up next, we have got What the Wookie Watched. And first... It's the stuff. Let's check out the trailer. No! Don't eat that! I saw it moving in the refrigerator. Here, Jason. Take some. There is something alive in there. They're good for us, Jason. (laughs) They kill the bad things inside us. Must be a side effect of eating too much dessert. It's gonna kill you! It's gonna kill you all! Hey, wait, wait, wait. We are not alone. Tonight, America is in grave danger. So are you prepared to say on the air that you've actually seen people devoured by the stuff? Oh, hell yes. And what's worse, I've seen what's left of them when the stuff gets through and comes back up. Okay, that was the trailer for The Stuff. I'm going to be honest with you. The Stuff, when I was a kid, whenever I came past in the video shop, when I was really young, scared the shit out of me. Just the just the cover of the, um, the guy's mouth being open and the thing falling out of it just terrified me. However, um, this has always been a personal favourite of mine. I'm a huge fan of Larry Cohen. Um, and of course, this was directed by him. It was also written by him. Uh, it starred uh, Larry Cohen regular uh, Michael Moriarty, who is absolutely brilliant in this as Mo Rutherford, uh, Andrea Marakovic or Marakovici. Um, Garrett Morris is in this. Uh, Paul Savino. Paul Savino is in this. I totally forgot he was in it. And Scott Bloom, Danny Ayo pops up in this. Uh, Patrick O'Neill, James Dixon, Alexander Scurby. This is a wonderful slice of 1985 madness. Absolute madness. Um, the, um, the stop motion effects are clunky and gorgeous. I love them. Um, this, I, I, some people have said that, you know, made the comment that this is the most cohesive Larry Cohen film out there. Um, I kind of, I think it's a bit of a sort of backhanded compliment. I love this film. It is totally bonkers. Uh, Michael Moriarty is absolutely superb in this. Absolutely superb. Um, Garrett Morris as Chocolate Chip Charlie is wonderful. Um, it, it's, it's just an insane film. Um, and it's a lot of fun. It really, really is. This is a throwback to monster movies of the 50s. This is an attack on consumerism. This is an outbreak film. 
um it's 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 wonderful it is really really wonderful and i can't recommend this enough um and it's an eight out of ten for me now up next we have got scary stories to tell in the dark from 2019 let's check out the trailer For years, the people in this town told lies about me. They locked me away, called me a monster. Now, they will get the monster they all deserve. Sarah Bellows' book. When the stories write themselves and it all comes alive. Who came up with all this sick stuff? Okay, that was the trailer for Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark from 2019. This was directed by uh, Andre Overdahl. Uh, it was written by Dan Hagman, uh, obviously based on uh, the uh, novelization by um, Alvin Schwartz, I think it is. I think it's Alvin Schwartz. If it's not, let me know. Um, of course, um, the screen story was then written, and this was also produced by the mercurial Guillermo del Toro. Uh, it stars Zoe Margaret uh, Colette, uh, Michael Garza, Gabriel Rush, Austin Abrahams, Dean Norris, Gil Bellows, Austin Zahir, and Natalie Ganshorn. Um, do you know what? There was a part of me that really didn't want to like this, um, which I'm kind of ashamed to say, because I felt it's obviously, you know, we getting a, we do get the, the kids the kids on bikes genre since the success of Stranger Things, and it does start to feel a little bit crowded and a little bit played out. However, of course, the story for this follows, uh, it's set in 1968, follows a group of three teenagers um, who uncover a deadly notebook written by a vengeful spirit. Um, but actually, I really, really enjoyed this. This is a lot of fun. Um, Andre Overdahl has done a great job with this. Um, the effects are great in this. I absolutely loved it. Um, and it's inventive. The scenes with the scarecrow the, the, uh, is... is they're brilliant, and it's it's just wonderfully creepy. However, the biggest disappointment I think is the trailers for this kind of gives away big chunks of the of the film. Um, so tr if you haven't seen it, try and avoid the trailers. 
um, even though I've just played <laughs> you the one at the start. Um, but you can't see it, so that helps. Um, but I really, really enjoyed this, and I think, um, even though it, it sort of, I think there was a sense they kind of underperformed. Um, Zoe Marguerite uh, Colette is absolutely superb in this. She's really, really good. Um, some of the cast are a little, little wooden in areas. However, it's enjoyable. It moves very, very quickly. It's well directed. It looks fantastic. But it just doesn't have something that sort of tips it over to make it that sort of extra special sort of classic that we could probably come back to and visit in years to come. Um, and I would give this a 7 out of 10. So, ladies and gentlemen, our time together has drawn to an end. First of all, I'd like to say thank you for Liam for being on. Um, always a pleasure. Um, I do feel like when he comes on, our IQs do go up a little bit on the show. <laughs> but we won't keep that up for too long. Um, and remember, guys, please stay indoors. Keep washing your hands. Keep the social distancing going. Stay safe. Look after each other. And in the immortal words of Count Dacula, good night out there. Whatever you are. Thank you.